In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you don't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe had precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So writes the atheist scientist Richard Dawkins. Our reading from Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 presents a rather different story. Dawkins' insistence on offering a purely natural description of the way the world is, is I suppose at one level a valid way of looking at things. It's just that such an approach cannot properly demand a conclusion that there is no God, as he would suggest. What Dawkins and others like him are really doing is presenting their own philosophical worldview, their own faith-based conclusions that there is no God. But while certain views of evolutionary theory may adequately describe biological processes at work in our world, they don't come even close to explaining them. One analogy that is often used is that of a watch. Suppose you find a watch in a field and you've never seen a watch before. What do you make of it? Well, you may figure out how it works and have a grand understanding of the physics of it. And you may be impressed at how intricate it is. But you'll never explain it as a watch unless you know what watches are for. And that is something that the scientific method cannot tell you. As Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor says, the mystery of human life is not only in living, but in knowing why one lives. And it's the why question that the creation story in the Bible is most concerned about. And alongside that question is also who. So today, I want to invite you to enter in to the majesty and mystery of God and of humanity as we consider who made it all happen and why. Well, that's quite an invitation, I realize, but it is Trinity Sunday, so allow your minds to be stretched just a little. You know, it makes me sad when Christians get into heated arguments about creation versus evolution based on our Old Testament reading. Christians may legitimately disagree about how and when and over what time period they believe God created the world, but it's a huge mistake to take the timeless truths of Genesis that tell us about the majesty and mystery of God and force them into some uh, straitjacket of a textbook of biological science. For that is something that a faithful reading of the text does not permit us to do. This wonderful text is more of a beautiful, poetic liturgy of praise than it is a scientific textbook. Indeed, strictly speaking, creation doesn't come within the domain of science, for it's not a scientific category. 
But that said, the theology of creation, the theology in Genesis 1, is not in conflict with honest scientific study. Indeed, the orderly account sets the stage for science to have the opportunity to look at the patterns of how the world came into being and how it operates. This breathtaking account of God at work, his spirit sweeping over the chaos to bring order, his calling into being the sun, the moon, and the stars, his calling forth life, plants and creatures of all different kinds, inspires us and fills us with awe. This account tells us that God is the sole creator of the universe. Everything in heaven and on earth owes its existence to the sovereign will of God. The message is clear. Our God has no rivals, no competitors. His word is supreme. He speaks and it is done. And in it all, we see an extravagant display of diversity, of creativity. God is the great artist who delights in all that he has made. God brings things into being, things that are not. God breathes life where there was no life. Now this ought to bring you great comfort and hope, especially when we may experience in this life chaos, brokenness, disorder. For God comes into the midst of the chaos and the confusion to bring order and restoration. As he did so at the very dawn of our time, so he does so still today by his Holy Spirit. God still speaks into that which is broken and makes new. He hovers over our darkness and says, let there be light. Be encouraged, for our God, the Creator God, is still in the business of creation and recreation, and it is good. That's one of the reasons we gather here week by week, to sing His praises, to kneel before the Lord our Maker in humility and thanksgiving, for He is good. And with the psalmist we proclaim, O Lord our Governor, How exalted is your name in all the world. And so we worship the triune God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And his creation inspires and encourages and calls forth worship. After the first 25 verses of the creation story, in which there has been evening and morning five times, and each time God sees what he has made, and it was good, We then come, in verse 26, to the high point of God's creation. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. I want to spend the remaining of our time thinking about this extraordinary verse and its implications for each one of us. What does it mean to be made in the image of God. Well, to a large extent, it defines what it means to be human. And I want to unpack this in three ways 
in terms of relationship, in terms of responsibility, and in terms of rest. The first thing to say is that the image of God is not about something we have or something we do, but rather it is about relationship. God creates in his image beings who have the gift of relationship with him. And this story is so very different from other ancient myths and creation stories that are out there, in which the gods basically create humans to be slaves to the gods, to provide food for the gods. Whereas on the contrary, our God provides food for us. The meaning of the universe is not to be found in some impersonal cosmic force. It's not to be found in a scientific worldview, but in a personal God who wants to be in relationship with those whom he has made. To be human is to be made for relationship, to love and be loved by God who created us. This means then that relationship is at the heart of the universe. If we want to find purpose in life, we find it not in possessions or wealth or status or power or knowledge, but in relationship with God. Christians then have a vital role in the world to be salt and light within the power structures and universities and hospitals and financial institutions and classrooms and libraries to witness to this fundamental nature of our humanity, to the importance of right relationship with our maker and with all whom he has made. But why did he make us? Was God lonely in heaven? Was he bored? No. God in the Trinity was already in relationship and in love in three persons. God didn't make the universe because he somehow needed to be loved. He created humans because he wanted to. Why do people have children? Hopefully not for a utilitarian purpose to be kept in their old age, I mean, some hope there is of that. But uh, in a healthy family, babies are created in partnership with our creator God out of the love the parents share in relationship with each other, out of sheer delight in bringing a new life into the world. All human life is a gift from our creator who gives the capacity for relationships, whatever our age or our abilities, physically or mentally. The image of God is not seen in glorious isolation, but most fully in and through individuals in community. Theologian Karl Barth pointed out the importance of verse 27, in that the image and likeness of God is expressed in male and female. He created them. We were created for life in harmony with others, just as the very Godhead is lived in a tri-unity of relationships. We share the image of God as we need one another, male and female, in community. And it's in community where necessarily we bump up against one another and have our edges rounded off. 
and we experience confrontation. And it's in this context that we have the opportunity to encounter the image of God in one another. My tutor for pastoral theology in Oxford, David Atkinson, used to read to all his students an extract from the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. Any of you familiar with that book? Yes? Well, um, we've been doing heady stuff, so I just want to help you re-engage with an extract from this wonderful children's storybook. So, if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. The Velveteen Rabbit turned to the old, wise, experienced skin horse in the nursery and asked, What is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? The skin horse replied, Real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get very shabby. But once you are real, you cannot become unreal again. It lasts for always. We become real through relationships of love. True humanness is about becoming, not just being. Relationships take place over time. Atkinson puts it this way, In a sense, therefore, while it is proper to speak of Jesus Christ as the true human being, for he was, of course, fully man and fully God, we should speak of ourselves as human becomings, To understand the image of God primarily in terms of relationship is to see it not only as a gift from God, as he calls us into relationship with himself, but as a task to be undertaken, a destiny to be followed. The really clear, the only really clear and unblemished image of God is, of course, seen in Jesus. What we see in one another is a rather less clear reflection, a less clear image Because, of course, our relationships with God are far from perfect. But the story of God's relationship with us is one filled with forgiveness and restoration and renewal. Well, another aspect of our relationship with God and being in his image is that we represent God on earth. Only human beings are given this status. It's not given to the animals. It's not even given to the angels. There is something special, something unique about our standing as human beings. And with this comes responsibility. You know, stewardship is first encountered right here in the very first chapter of the Bible. Our triune God is the creator, the master, the owner. And we, his creatures, who are called into relationship with the creator are in turn entrusted with the great responsibility of managing that which belongs to God. In verse 28, we heard, God bless them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And sadly, humans have all too often and all too easily substituted domination for dominion. Instead of being royal stewards in the kingdom of God, properly ruling over that which does not belong to us, we have greedily acted as if it was all ours to lord over. You know, being environmentally responsible is not a luxury add-on for the Christian who wants to be green. It's part and parcel of the stewardship to which we are called as those who are made in the image of God. Well, the final thing I want to say about this passage and our being made in the image of God is actually rather surprising. The creation of human beings in relationship with God and in community with one another and properly exercising their God-given responsibilities towards the whole creation is the pinnacle of this account. Yes, but it's not the end of the account. Our passage reaches its completion not on the sixth day, but on the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he'd done in creation. As those who are created in the image of God, we are created not only for work and for responsibility, but also for rest. God gives us this wonderful gift, time and space for worship, for play, for stillness, for solitude, for developing relationships with family and friends. These things are not luxuries for the few, but part of the basic design for all. Oh, what foolish, arrogant, unfaithful, untrusting and pitiful creatures we are when we think we know better than our maker. When we think that we don't have time, that we are too busy or we are too important or too stressed to take one day each week to stop, to rest, to worship, to play, to be still. You can read more about this whole theme in the book I've recommended for summer reading, all about Sabbath, and you can pick them up afterwards if you want to. But the seventh day is a time for reflecting on the days that have gone before, as well as looking forward to the days that are to come. It's a time for rejoicing in all that is good. And the scene here in Genesis chapter 1 is... It's kind of, to me, it's like an artist who's finished this great work of sculpture or painting, who is stepping back, able to appreciate and enjoy that which he or she has produced. We need to affirm the importance of and appreciation for human creativity, which is God-given in our work, in the arts, wherever we encounter it. What a great creator we have that endues us with the gifts and talents to make music and art, 
to dance and paint, to play sport and make films, to laugh and sculpt and write poems. Before the fall, before anything is spoiled, before we hear a murmur or see a glimpse of sin and evil and pain and separation, we need to hear and see this unbridled pleasure and delight in the creation. What God has made is good. This is the basis for celebration and enjoyment of all that God has created. Listen again to the psalmist. What is man that you should be mindful of him? You adorn him with glory and honor. You give him mastery over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. O Lord, our governor, how exalted is your name in all the earth. Thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.